If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 7, uh, the second half of what is, we just read in Matthew as a single unit. Actually, Matthew sort of has three units that Mark breaks out in that one text that was read this morning. The last two songs that we sang are very, very appropriate for our text for this morning. Uh, The next to the last song was on focusing on the Word of God and and being sure that that is the shaping influence of your life. And then the, the last song, warning us that that may sound easy, but you don't get to do it in a vacuum. You have to do it in a sea of godless traditions from all different sides, which makes it very, very difficult. The godless traditions of the right and the godless traditions of the left and their you are, as a Christian, trying to live as a disciple without being fundamentally shaped by either one of those traditions, but by the Word of God itself. And that's what the essence of discipleship is, to be shaped by the Word of God and not by any of the relatively secular and godless traditions that swirl around us and that we listen to and hear and that appeal to us all the time. Because that's true. And there's no getting rid of that. There's no changing that. So with that said, let's stand together. Mark chapter 7, verses 6. 13. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. You leave the commandment of God, and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus, making void the word of God, by your tradition that you have handed down. And many 
such things you do. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, you assure us that we are blessed if we do not walk in the traditions of the wicked, that we do not stand in the traditions of sinners, that we do not sit in the traditions of the scoffers, but rather, if we are among those By your grace, by the supernatural circumcision of our own hearts that have a delight in your instruction and who are those who think about, order our lives, meditate on your instructions and your perspectives, day and night, so that when anything comes up, it's your perspectives that come to our mind first and foremost. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to make that our goal, and to some real degree, some increasing degree, to cause that to be actually what we are like. For you assure us when that is happening that then we are like trees planted by streams of water which give out godly fruit throughout the seasons of our lives and our leaves won't wither. And all which we do, you will be able to prosper it for the sake of your own glory and for the sake of your own name. It's not like this for many of those traditions that we are so tempted to join on to and to flow with. For as powerful and as important And as prestigious as they seem in the present moment, the wind will blow them away. And in the end, those who embrace those traditions will not be able to find any place to stand in your judgment. And the people who have embraced those traditions will have no place in the congregation of your people who delighted in your word. For you know and love and devote yourself to and walk alongside of the way of the righteous, the Jesus way, and warn that the way of the wicked will surely Perish. 
Lord, may we heed your warnings to us, even as we find them in our text for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Seated. Mentioned before, Ari Goldblum had been the had worked for the New York Times for for seventeen years, uh, and near the end of that seventeen year stretch, they had made him the editor um, of the religious section of the New York Times, and as part of having that position. He asked that he would be given a sabbatical for one year to attend Harvard Divinity School. And he did that. He did that around 1990. Wrote a big spread at the end of it that appeared in the New York Times. But then also wrote, as I've mentioned before, a best-selling book that sprung out of that year at Harvard, called The Search for God at Harvard. One of the little stories in that book that really struck me uh, when I read that all those years ago was this one. Here's what he wrote about a woman named Fran. Now, Fran is no conservative. Fran is a uh, a, a feminist. Uh, She's there for... uh, reasons related to the feminist movement and so forth. And still, listen to what Fran's experience was because she was raised in church. Fran was initially delighted with the divinity school. It lived up to all of her expectations as a friendly, tolerant place. Until one day in contemporary theology she found that there was little tolerance for one way of thinking. The discussion turned to a debate over whether there is such a thing as life after death. Fran, who had read the Bible since the time she was a small child, raised her hand confidently and said, There is proof from John chapter 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. There were audible snickers in the room. In certain academic circles, especially at Harvard Divinity School, the Bible can be picked apart, examined, debated, condemned, but never, never, never accepted at face value, as historic fact. Now, that's the assessment of the editor of the religious section at the New York Times, conservative Jew, Ari Goldblum. He goes on. When the Snickers died away, the discussion continued as if Fran's suggestion that the Bible is history had simply not been made. It was apparently too outrageous to even contemplate. 
In other words, the official position there at Harvard is luck. The Bible is a joke. It's a joke. And, and if you are going to be a serious intellect, you just are not going to be able to pay it that time of day. Other than to study it for whatever reason, never for its substance. It's a joke. Now, that's the message of cultural Marxism all across America. Well, what's amazing is the contrast. The contrast. What happens when you show up in a place like North Korea? where classical Marxism is in control. Oh, in North Korea, nobody laughs about the Bible. In fact, in North Korea, if you are caught with a Bible, there's a very good chance you'll be executed. So, But it's the same broad ideological tradition. So which is it? Is it that the Bible is laughable or that the Bible is so dangerous that you can't let its message loose in your country once you've really taken control. Now, Jesus would definitely side with the North Koreans. He thinks the Bible is a substantial thing. Jesus is a written word of God guy. Uh, In other words, If you're trying to be a totalitarian, it's really difficult to have a book around that says, you know, no human regime can ever be the final authority on anything. It's God. That's a powerful message. That's a big message. That's a message with massive, massive implications. And it's the Bible's message. It's the Bible's message. Jesus would uh, uh, be right in line with one of the more uh, famous verses in the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119, Psalm 119, 105. Your lamp is a word to my feet and a light to my path. That's how Jesus thought, taught. That's how Jesus lived. And that's how he recommended that you and I think and live. And that's what he models in this text, in his dispute with the Pharisees. He interacts with their tradition, and then he answers it by a direct appeal to the Word of God. Let's state our thesis for this morning this way. Jesus makes a clear contrast between human traditions and the Word of God. 
Jesus makes a clear contrast between human traditions and the word of God. We'll take this up under th- from three vantage points. Number one, Jesus evaluated human traditions by means of the word of God. Verse 6 and 7, he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Um, So they're accusing Jesus Disciples, you remember, you guys are godless as it comes to ritual washings. What's the matter with you? And Jesus' response to that is, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you Hypocrites. Now, there's two different kinds of hypocrites. There's conscious hypocrites and there's unconscious hypocrites. That is, there's people who are quite consciously pretending to be one thing when they know that they're another. That's conscious hypocrisy. And then there's unconscious hypocrisy. There's people to pretending to be one thing, they're really not that thing, but they actually believe that they are. That's, that's more the Pharisees and the scribes here. They actually believe that their tradition is correct. They really do believe that these washings are at and near the very center of what godliness is all about. Uh, And so Jesus is alerting them at this point to an hypocrisy that they're completely unaware of. It's it's not excusable at all. Uh, These last two paragraphs we've looked at as we open, uh, Mark 7, have to be read in the context of Mark 6. Now remember, what, is, what happened in Mark 6, the last two-thirds of Mark 6, is Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, bringing to mind with anybody who has ears to hear and eyes to see that, wow, that's, that's kind of like God feeding the Israelites in the desert for the 40 years. Uh, Jesus walks on the water, approaches his disciples so as to, as we noted, cause all his glory to pass by them. Like parting the Red Sea in the book of Exodus. Causing them to be able to experience and see his glory. Now the scribes and the Pharisees wouldn't have known about that one. They knew about the other, but they knew about dozens of healings. Dozens of things that they couldn't explain in any other way And all of those things, you see, were meant to have the effect on the nation and on anybody who heard about them. And this is Mark's point in chapter 6, that God's presence had on Moses in 
Exodus 34, 6. And the Lord passed over him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. There would have been the appropriate response to the kinds of things that Jesus does in Mark chapter 6, that somebody recognizes him as extraordinary and bows their head to the ground in worship. But instead, scribes and the Pharisees, aha! Oh yeah, feeding 5,000 people with, you know, with five loaves and two fish. I'm not sure how he did that, but I, no, no, I, I don't know how he healed this person or that person. But what I do know this, is this. His disciples don't know squat about hand washing. Which calls the whole Jesus enterprise into question for us. (laughs) And to this, Jesus says, You hypocrites. You hypocrites. That is so pathetic. And he goes to Isaiah. Why? Well, because the people in Isaiah's day were doing the same thing. And so he goes to Isaiah 29.13. Now, he actually quotes it as it's found more in the Septuagint, but I'm going to give it to you as it's found in the ESV, which is a rendering of the Hebrew text, not the Septuagint, the Greek translation text. So here's how it is. In, uh, in the Hebrew text, as reflected in ESV, the Lord God said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, their fear of me is commandments taught by men. See, their fear of him, that's their worship of him, their reverence for him. The reverence is not actually tied to anything that God has said. The reverence is tied to human traditions that men made up on their own. The same thing was happening in Isaiah's day. The people were going off of their own traditions, so that they could fool themselves into thinking we are really quite a devout people. We have no idea what Isaiah is complaining about because we're quite devout. Well, that was only true because they were completely focused on human traditions and had no idea. And so Jesus quotes the Isaiah passage, and he says, This people honors me with their lips. Oh, they say many, many, many good things. But their heart is far from me, and in vain, that is, empty. See, 
What's empty about it? Well, because the basis of their religion, their fear, is the traditions of men. May have been a different Hebrew word in the in the in the uh, manuscript that the Septuagint translated as empty, but everybody agrees it's the same idea. It's still the same idea to put it as the Septuagint did. It's the same idea, vain, empty. Their fear is grounded purely in the traditions of men, and that is what you can't let happen to yourself. Secondly. Jesus accused human traditions of rejecting the word of God. Verses 8 and 9, really plainly and flatly. You leave the command of God and hold to the tradition of men. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition." Now, this problem is an equal opportunity problem. By that I mean, it it is just as readily able to trip you up if you are a person of the right or if you are a person of the left. It makes no difference. makes no difference. The problem is the same And you get tripped up in the same way. Because all you end up doing is substituting your tradition for the commandment of God. So, as I've mentioned many, many times, I was was raised from the time I was in the third grade to the time I was in... The 10th grade, those were my, my seven years uh, immersed in the fundamentalist movement in, in America. The Wonder Lake Bible Church was a member in good standing of uh, what would be considered the fundamentalist movement in America. Uh, no desire to tear that to pieces. I learned much there and had many wonderful spiritual examples uh, given to me there. However, however, oh, do they tend to trip over this notion that Jesus is talking about here in, in lots of different ways. I'm just going gonna, gonna to mention one. Uh, uh, Shirley and I were first married. We were uh, tried to live a little closer to Chicago, uh, but uh, didn't have a job yet. Nobody down there would rent an apartment to you if you didn't have a job. We were about to get married and go on our honeymoon. I had no time to find a job. And so uh, uh, I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. A dad, my friend of my dad said, oh, no, I know a landlord out here. If you're willing to just come out a little further out by where you grew up, Got a guy that'll rent you an apartment, no problem. He knows you're going to get a job, and that's what we did. So we ended up out in Richmond, Illinois, and attending the Wonder Lake Bible Church. And and you know, so now there I'm uh, 21 years old, and and the 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 best Bible teacher in the church, uh, also mentoring uh, uh, me at the time. And uh, led Bible, uh, just, just quite a remarkable couple they were. 
Uh, but they, they were not, never had been, and couldn't be members of the church. Well, because he smoked cigarettes. And in that church, if you smoke cigarettes, out. We don't care if you're Calvin, Augustine, out upon you. Um, no. No. Uh, that is, that is the, well, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's kind of a thing to, designed to keep the riffraff out. That's the design. But, it, but its actual effect, you see, is to keep the riffraff in. Um, because it, 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 works, it works strangely. But it works like this. The problem with a tradition like that is somebody like me, according to that tradition... I'm one spotless soul, right? I don't smoke. I never have. I don't even want to. So as to that piece of joining the church, 100%. But how about if you go to something like, like that the Lord has already actually said? Like... You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by the way, the fruit of the Spirit is love. So how do I score there? Nowhere near 100%. Like, ooh, ouch. Ouch. Disappointing. Inconsistent. And so what happens? The tradition focuses on things that enable you to fool yourself into believing yourself to be among the spiritually elite. Because these four or five things, smoking was one of them, you didn't go to the movie theater, you certainly did not dance. That would probably throw you further down the hill than smoking, but it'd be close. Close. So there's, there's one side. Back to Ari Goldblum, though. Harvard Divinity School. He writes this little paragraph The Divinity School has a reputation for being particularly accepting of homosexuality. There aren't a lot of seminaries in the country where it is okay to be gay. That's just 1990. That's not true anymore at all. Not even close to true. But apparently, it was in 1990 still. At most seminaries, being homosexual is a cardinal sin. At the Divinity School... The cardinal sin, and then we'll we'll use the, you know the, the designed cultural Marxist words homophobic, but all that really means is, the cardinal sin is having any critique at all of the lifestyle of homosexuality. That's what they mean by homophobic. If you think that homosexuality is less than 
normal in a way that heterosexuality is in any way. So what does the word of God say about something like that? Well, listen to Paul in Romans 1. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged the natural relations for those that were contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion one for another, men committing shameless acts and men receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Oh, poor homophobic Paul. Well, the problem is, you see, and people will be quick to point this out. Okay, but Jesus never said anything like that. Jesus never said anything like that. But Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he speaks for Christ. So any orthodox understanding of how the New Testament works means that for Paul to have said something like that, Jesus might as well have said it. And Jesus addresses this issue, I want you to notice, in verse 9, sarcastically. So if you've ever wondered whether Jesus can be sarcastic, well, he's sarcastic here. Some were willing to say sarcasm. Others say, well, it's highly, highly ironic. It, sarcastic is the right word. Sarcastic is definitely the right word. When he says, um, well, you have designed this. In other words, you are fantastic. You are fantastic at dismissing the word of God whenever sticking with your traditions makes it necessary. You're gifted at that. And he's saying it like that. It's, a, it's, it's sarcastic. Very well. You guys are marvelous. You're really, really good at rejecting the commandment of God and inserting your own tradition in its place. So now, finally, Jesus simply gives an example. One simple, concrete example of what he's talking about. Um, and it's not a hand-washing example, right? He goes to a different example. State it this way. Jesus illustrates how human traditions attempt to nullify the word of God. You have a fine way of what? Not just fooling yourself. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. Well, you reject the word of God. You're just marvelous at rejecting the word of God. How do they do it? Well, here's Jesus' example. He goes to a commandment that our culture really, really hates as well. They didn't hate it anything like our 
culture hates this. They didn't mean to be opposed to it. Our culture means to be. Moses said, verse 10, Honor your father and mother. So when you read those words, you know, your patriarchy alarm system is to go off. Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin. That is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. Now, don't miss that, that this simple little phrase, we read over the top of it because it's, such, it's just such common biblical language. Right? So we saw it up in verses 8 and 9. Command of God. Command of God. Here, word of God. Transcendent, final, ultimate words in the world. And we have a tendency to replace those with whatever we made up. And sometimes we do it directly, sometimes we do it inadvertently. Jesus is alluding to a couple of texts in Exodus here, Exodus twenty twelve. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And then an interesting follow-up to that that you wouldn't have guessed would be coming. Whoever curses his father and mother, he shall surely be put to death. Why does he add the second thing? Well, yeah, it's the second thing, because the second thing reminds you that the Lord takes the first thing way more seriously than we are prone to do. This business of honoring your father and mother is no small thing. As to its significance, it's like death penalty serious in what its implications will turn out to be if you don't pay any attention to it. And so whatever you'd have to do to keep that sort of negative attitude toward fundamental authority seeping into your culture, you better do it. No matter what it takes, wipe it out. Before what ignoring it, comes to power and wipes you out. That's the idea. That's the idea. So here's how it worked 
in the example that he's given. And we understand, we understand this very well. It's usually, this, this would usually happen the other way around, right? This would happen parents toward children. But here's, here's the kind of thing that we do when we, with somebody, we get really mad at somebody and then we quickly react to what they did. And so, um, uh, so, so somebody's kids really disappoint them and they say, okay, that's it. Writing you out of the will. Out of the will, that's it for you. Write you out of the will. Now this one is working the other way around. So now we're in the ancient world, and this time it's the children who are mad at the parents whom they believe will probably need their help later in life. Financially. And so, what the kids say is, all right, I'm taking what I might have helped you with, and I'm officially calling it Corbin. I'm giving it to the Lord so that when you need it, I won't be able to help you with it. So there. And they do it. And they do it. But as usually happens in such cases... After seven years go by, we can't remember what we were so mad about when we wrote somebody out of the will. And so now, the picture is, the seven years have gone by. And this particular person's parents are now in need. And they have now gone to the spiritual authorities and are saying, you know, seven years ago, I sort of lost my temper and got mad at my parents and I told them, Corbin, and I came to you and officially made this property and this source of income Corbin, but now they really need help and I I would really like to help them. So is there a way that we could get some of the Corbin stuff and allow me to help my parents. And they say, no. No. There is no way. Corbin is Corbin. Now don't miss Jesus' point. There's nothing from God on this Corbin idea. This is purely a human tradition that they made up. On the other hand, the part of helping your parents, oh, that's one of the big ten in God's word. And so now, what's happening? The Corbin tradition is trumping and completely wiping out What God said. That's what's happening. And that's what Jesus calls them on. That's what Jesus calls them on. This is what you do. The thing that God said nothing about, oh, you're strict as the day is long. The thing that God actually said something about, 
Not so big on that. Not when it messes with your traditions. And then it closes with this really, really, really haunting, disturbing sort of word. And many such things you do. We're surrounded by these things. I'm just going to close with this. I, I, I mean, I, uh, in, in, our, in our culture, the public control things, you know, from traditions of the left, are, they just dominate the landscape 100 to 1. 100 to 1. That doesn't mean that there's not a lot of deadly stuff in the 1% that's still there, right? Especially among the Christian community where we focus in on the 1%. We, we what, talk radio, we listen to this third and that third, or where the traditions of the right are floating around. You know, and one of them goes like this way. You know, former President Trump, he is probably an evangelical Christian. I really think he is. I read several things online. I really think he is. So I sure hope we get a godly president back. Have you ever read the Bible? Opened it up. Seen what a born-again Christian looks like, roughly speaking, even in all of its inconsistency. If you would, he looks nothing like that. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Nothing. We don't read the Bible carefully enough. And so we're low-hanging fruit for one tradition or the next. They're both equally deadly in the end. Equally deadly in the end. So be sure, you see, because this is Jesus' takeaway. Be sure that you as a disciple are governed in your life, in your thinking, by the word of God. Not by this human tradition or that, whether it be the right or the left, that you are governed. By the word of God. That's what you're after. That's what discipleship is after. That's what we as a church are after. That. That. Thing that Jesus is talking about here. In Mark 7. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I ask that you would. Enable us to hear your voice. And to understand that there are commands of God that we can shape our lives by. And oh, how we should hope to do that. Pray to do that. Study to do that. Meditate to do that. Repent so as to do that more consistently. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.